0: Our super contributions are designed to ensure that we have a happy retirement. So how is that working out? And what's happening within the superannuation industry to make that happen, particularly in an environment which all of a sudden is a lot less certain? And how does the system cope with more and more Australian money being invested in super funds? Are we going to run out of places to put those dollars? That's this week. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. Weekend edition. So at the end of uh, the June quarter, there were assets totaling three and a half trillion. Dollars sitting in superannuation funds in Australia, in an industry which has given an annualised rate of return of 5.3% over recent years, which is not bad given what we've been through. Although lately, of course, a chunk of that acquired wealth has been frittered away by inflation. So, where do we go next? Is it all healthy? What are the challenges? What are the risks? And given that super funds are now, you know, almost one and a half times Australia's GDP, do more investments have to shift overseas? Have we run out of domestic opportunities? And what? Does that do for the risk of portfolios? Well, Diane Somerville is a principal for Superannuation Consulting at Deloitte Australia. First of all, Diane, that three and a half trillion figure—obviously, that will grow as you know the Super Guarantee uh, rises and the population increases. So, how quickly is that value of assets going to increase over the next few years? Do you think?
1: Thank you, um, Phil. So I think, you know, we, we will see a lot of growth um, in the um market. We're still reaching the point of you know, maturity. Um, the separation guarantee charge is currently sitting at 11% and still to do um, increase to 12%. Um, And what our projections are showing is really approximately that the total assets would triple over about the next 20 years. Mm. And you'd be looking towards getting up towards um, $10 trillion in superannuation in about 20 years time.
0: And how's that going to relate to, you know, if we're one and a half times GDP now, how's that going to relate to GDP at that point?
1: I guess forecast of GDP, you can have, um, you know, different economists having different projections, mm, but probably look at, you're probably looking up <laughs> towards, you know, 180, uh, sorry, um, like 1. 1.8 times um, GDP mm. and perhaps getting close to um, two times GDP um, when you look out to I guess, 25 to 30 years. And it
0: looks like the, the, the median balance, the figures I've got here, and I think these are fairly current, for a man in his early 60s is about 212,000, for a woman it's 158,000. So is that enough? I mean that that obviously will grow because as as the super guarantee grows and as you know as more people are paying into super for longer that still seems a bit light on doesn't it
1: correct and so i think I thinking you've quoted the median numbers and i think if you looked at averages they would be higher but that's because we've got some people that have quite sizable balances and that then makes things look um, a bit different. I think the but median
0: we- numbers are more more realistic number to look at, isn't it? Really, because it shows how many people are falling below that level.
1: Exactly. So median being that half the people actually have a balance below that, and half have above. So yeah. I agree. I think that's a good reference in terms of whether it's enough. Um, you can look at um, what the ASFA, being the Association of Superannuation Funds of Australia, publishes, and they publish um, what they call a retirement standard and what would be a comfortable. Um, those sort of levels for median um, account balances wouldn't be enough to support that comfortable standard of living um, indefinitely. They're saying that really you would have to have a balance of, if you're a single, about um, $595,000 at retirement. Um, And for a couple, it would be about $690,000. So on those sort of numbers, provided you retiring as a couple, you potentially be able to reach that comfortable lifestyle in retirement. Um, And that obviously... Is based on also that you are a homeowner, so we have issues um, where people may not be owning a home at retirement, and then they need to have additional demands about actually how how are you funding that roof over your? Head and paying for that rent. Of
0: course, you know the old, the old-fashioned way in Australia used to be. Well, yeah, I'll just invest in property, and then come out at the other end and uh, sell my house and down scale, and that's going to be my that's been going to be my retirement. I think that that way of thinking is perhaps a little old-fashioned now because there's not a guarantee that there's going to be a steady yes. stream of people wanting to, uh, to to buy those houses. So we are going down a safer road for sure. But I mean, at what point do we reach that that peak? At what point, I wonder, do we get to a level? where there's been enough money going into super funds that, you know, that, that median of $212,000, uh, or, or for a couple, what is it, about 350000 that actually gets up to that sort of like, you know, the, the equivalent of today's half a million. Yeah. I wonder how many years um, that's going to take.
1: So in terms of current statistics um, – Approximately 63% of people are going to retire with a balance less than 250,000. But when you look forward in 20 years, that would reduce to only about 26,000. So about a quarter of the population would have um, below 250,000. So what we have is that we are getting people who are accumulating more meaningful balances, and that's the nature also that the superannuation guarantee um, originally started at 3%. So some of the people who are you know in their 60s today, they haven't had the benefit of having what's currently you know over 10% sg for the most of their lives so we will see that also mean that people are going to have bigger balances. Um, remembering that there's also a bit of an age pension safety net. So what we also do see is that perhaps the same number of people are going to be getting the age pension, but instead of being eligible for a full pension, because by nature of having larger super balances, they'll get a partial age pension, or they may not need a pension in the early years of retirement. And then if you live a bit longer as you whittle down your superannuation balance, then that's when you can start relying on that Age pension to supplement that overall retirement income that you can. And, what, and what's
0: been the impact of COVID in all of this? Because, of course, the government allowed the early release of, of funds in 2020 to try and uh, help make ends meet. Uh, and But we also know that in Australia, many parts of the world, COVID also increased savings. So that perhaps meant that you had more money that you could put into pension funds. So, did, did, was there any net effort? Did one offset the other, in other words? Or have we, I mean, did we continue? That that progression during those COVID years of putting more and more into super.
1: So I, I think this might be a little bit of a you know case of the haves and the haves nots. So the people who were still in mm. employment then perhaps did have spare income. They couldn't um, travel overseas, things like that. So they would have um, more discretionary money to be able to put into their superannuation. Um, but then we also saw you know four over four and a half um, million applications, yeah. which were about um for over three million Australians actually asking for early release of their superannuation. Um, And that total and total amount released of almost um thirty-eight billion dollars. Um so we did see that as a bit of a drain. Um We did see it spread across all age groups, but if you imagine some of the younger age groups, they wouldn't have had that much in superannuation. You could only get a maximum of twenty thousand spread over two uh, financial years out, and that could actually be a quite a chunk of your um, retirement savings. So the other thing that we don't know yet of how much people are going to do, but they're also introduced um, rules that you can now re-contribute. So you know, as people have got back into employment and things like that depending upon where you're sitting, you may have the ability to put some extra money back right. in.
0: So you can um, play catch-up, in other words.
1: So that's right. So you can play catch-up, and that's effectively over a 10-year um, period ending in um, 2030. So we'll see w- what that does in terms of people, I guess, trying to put some extra money in um, without necessarily counting towards their caps, but to you know build up your retirement balance um, because the other part of it is for having drawn money out you also are missing the investment earnings that you're effectively foregoing on that um, yeah. over that period of time. So it's almost a case of the earlier you can get it in, the, the better off you'll be because you'll actually um, then get the investment earnings to help to you know, supplement your final account balance.
0: Now, a lot of those investment earnings in the past, traditionally, you know, quite a proportion have come from shares. But I mean, these are uncertain times and even bonds, supposedly the safe choice, uh, is either a risk or a growth opportunity, depending on your perspective. So how is the uh, are we seeing the, the balance of funds changing? Um, I mean, for, and there could be two reasons for that. One is just, you know, the times that we live in, but the other one could just be the amount of money as well as an aggregate, which is going into pension funds, into super funds.
1: Yes. And, and I think, you know, talking about the current times, we have seen a lot more investment um, volatility, even during the COVID period where obviously there was a lot of uncertainty and ups and downs, but even post that and the you know, nature of what might be happening around inflation is also then, you know, causing markets to react different ways. So so, it, it makes it very hard to predict. Um, we don't see necessarily a big change in that, particularly at an overall fund level, um, in terms of what might be the um, different asset allocations, and they still have a um, decent chunk that is really focused on those growth assets, remembering that superannuation, one, is preserved until you get to retirement, and also, even when you get to retirement, um particularly as balances get bigger, you're not going to be drawing it out as a single lump sum. You would actually be trying to spread that out over time and draw it as an income to effectively replace the income from when you were working, um, which means you don't want to take too much of a short-term focus or be too conservative because you're actually then foregoing return premium by taking a bit more risk in your investments. That's particularly the case when you're looking at what we have as our super and roughly about half, it's not exactly half, but roughly about half of Members are in that my super um, investment option, and so they're using um, just really saying to the fund, "Can you please invest on my behalf?" And the fund's you know looking at their group of members, working out what's the best asset allocation. Um, but what we do see is, particularly as balances get bigger, people take more of an interest and become more engaged in their superannuation, and then we'll look to. Um, make more of an investment choice decision whether they want to take more or less risk and particularly a number of funds also get to the stage of actually giving members the ability to do, make a direct um, investment choice, which means investing in some of the you know top funds listed on the ASX or um, also exchange-traded funds and things like that so that they can actually, I guess – take more control over what they want to do with this. And and is
0: more of that being invested overseas now? Because I'd imagine if you've got particularly, I mean, one and a half times GDP now, but rising, I mean, wouldn't there be a risk that all of this money being invested in domestic assets is going to creating you know asset price inflation you know we, we, we're just going to be popping up the, the the share market by put pumping more money into it i mean obviously the, the way to stop that happening is putting more money overseas but that increases risk because obviously you, you're starting to add the exchange rate uh, uh, variation into that and if you get a lot of money going overseas that's going to impact on the uh, on the yes. exchange rate as well so but is that starting that's- to happen
1: I'd say we do see more increase in investments overseas and that's actually just because there are actually um, more opportunities, particularly we see um, funds getting bigger and where mm-hmm. then, if you're as you're describing, we need to invest more money. What can we do if we've got limited um, opportunities in Australia? Then looking overseas is a valid option and that, in fact, does often give you a potential for diversifying your overall risk. So you're not going to be so um, exposed to what are the vagaries of the Australian, you know, share market? And you can actually then um, look at what's happening across the rest of the world. There, there is the ability to be to do um, more of that as well, um, even in funds such as SMSFs, particularly where they might be doing it um, through unit trusts and things. So they don't necessarily have to be investing directly, but you're still finding those opportunities to actually allocate more towards overseas. Um, so we do see that happening the The other thing that I think we might also see is more use of might, what might be um, synthetics or other ways of trying to replicate without having to actually add money into the market
0: and then obviously the the, the green energy transition as well i mean that must provide a a domestic opportunity as well the, the fact that there is so much money that is going to be invested. In renewables uh, in a very short space of time. So is that going to provide the returns that pensions are looking for? That, that obviously is, is the big question mark. But it's but it's an opportunity, isn't it?
1: Yes, it's definitely an opportunity. And what, one of the things that um, funds always have to keep in mind is that when they're making these decisions of investments, that they're acting in the best interests of their members. So you know that's the nature of looking at what what's the investment fundamentals of that. But they also do consider um, you know environmental, social. Societal and governmental issues, the ESG issues, when they're choosing their investments, um, and that's also something that um, is frequently requested by members as well—that um, they are mindful about. You know, I guess that, that they've put print on the on the you know, world that they're living in, and how do they best invest that money and do it? I guess almost invest for
0: good. You mentioned self-managed super funds. Are we seeing more of those? Because the the issue that consumers have had in the past, obviously, I mean, first of all, they've had their super split all over the place, you know, from every company they've worked for, uh, putting you onto a different super fund. But there's also been a concern about visibility. You know, what's the money invested in? How much am I paying in fees? What control do I have over investment choices? Is that situation improving? Are people happier about that? Or is that why we might see people saying, Well, I'm gonna take this into my own hands and I'm gonna I'm gonna do a self managed super?
1: Um, you probably do see a mix. So I think some people do like to have that sense of control, but we actually do don't see as much growth in the SMSFs in terms of dollars, and that's because what we actually have at the moment is that the amounts being drawn out of SMSs exceed the amounts that are going in. As a lot of these SMSFs tend to be for people who have um, who are more advanced in age, let's put it that way, so not, not in the early years of their working lives and towards the you know, middle and later stages and to into retirement, they are starting to draw that money down um, and that is akin to what we were also talking about earlier, as you've got um, relatively modest um, account balances, then you might be drawing more of that down more quickly um, because you need to still satisfy a minimum level of you know having to pay for your everyday bills and things like that. Um, but On the flip side, when we think about a lot of the major superannuation funds in Australia and the ones that are regulated by APRA as the regulator, they are increasingly looking to how can they better um, address what members are looking for in terms of that control, so um, the member direct investment options are increasingly being offered by um, a number of the major funds, um, which give the ability for people to almost replicate what they would do in their SMSF in terms of investing in the top, you know, ASX 300, um, any of those things um, that they could do specifically, as well as exchange, you know, major exchange traded funds, um, and also you know, um, term deposits and cash. So we do see a lot of that. Um, and also you can also see the funds that will have more of a building block style. So you can have a range of single sector, you know, Australian shares, international shares, you know, property, yeah. um, you know, fixed interest, cash. And then you can even maybe be looking at some other more complex investments such as hedge funds and things like that. Um, and how how could they all get packaged, packaged together? And then where people are actually able to make more of a decision than just being in a, a average you know, mixed fund that's got you know a mix of all sorts of asset classes; they can actually choose how do they want to cut that pie up.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think lots of people want to play in this space, don't they? And then they do it for a while, and then realise actually, perhaps it's more complicated than they thought, and they should le- they should leave it to the experts, perhaps. But I mean, you, you are talking about the you know the the industry is developing, isn't it? In terms of, and I guess online and technology is helping with this as well. The way that people can interact with their with their investments, but also, of course, you know we're seeing a lot of consolidation. So is I mean, how much has happened, and how is that you know is that going to continue? you and is that a good thing or a bad thing to see fewer large companies uh, rather than perhaps uh, you know more niche providers is it healthy for the industry
1: I think that it is healthy to have consolidation. Um, what we have seen is that the number of funds has reduced um, dramatically. Um, in terms of not-for-profit funds, over the last decade, they've um, reduced from ninety-seven to fifty-six, and we've also seen a significant reduction in the number of corporate funds that were you know, over a hundred and now down at you know about twenty or so. Uh, and similarly, in the retail space. Those the number of retail funds has also reduced from one hundred and thirty three down to fifty seven over the past ten years, and the reason why this is actually a benefit is the economies of scale. By having larger funds, they're able to spread some of these you know costs, particularly because there is increased um, regulatory and compliance obligations to make sure you know it's almost an uplifting of standards over time, and that's a benefit for individuals that you know that your supervision fund is going to be well managed and that the regulator is um, monitoring that. By having a greater of scale, you generally have lower fees. There is also the ability then to be able to invest in. Um, the funds have a bigger base to be able to invest, and that gives them the um, opening to invest in more opportunities than they would have if they were smaller and they wouldn't be able to get a look into that. And we do see a number of that where they might be, for example, um, working as private um, equity consortiums and actually then investing directly in some of the um, like infrastructure assets and things like that.
0: Plus, I mean, as we talked about as well, you know, just being able to offer that opportunity for uh, domestic and overseas investments as well, obviously that helps. But I mean, there's got to be visibility as well. And again, you know, that is happening now, though, isn't it? So, I mean, large funds are fine so long as you see what, you know, how much are they taking out? What what, what am I paying to them? How much is all of this costing me? If we've got clear visibility on that, I guess people don't really care how big the fund is. That, that's
1: correct. And in the end, it's a little bit of, you know, what am I paying? So I want to know that. And then what am I earning? And, you know, comes back to what we were talking about earlier about you see, do you see a bit of investment volatility particularly you know if you look at short term periods and it's probably something that you shouldn't react to if you were looking at your super balance every week to try to you know like move things around um but in terms of that reporting about what what's your growth in that um comparing how that return compares to other funds it's a, quite a, a a good thing. Um, There are different tools that are around across the industry and there's also um, a comparisons tool that the ATO has if um, people are wanting to look at how their fund compares to other funds in the market. And there's also more increased reporting and increased transparency, as you were talking about, that the funds are actually just giving to their members, including down to, you know, what are the top investments that are investing in. That's also being disclosed. So you can see that information to understand um, what is your fund investing in.
0: Right. So uh, just before we finish off, I mean, we'll be talking about. You know, an upward trajectory. Everything's looking good, uh, Diane. You know, uh, but but is it? I mean, is is are we going to reach a point of peak super? Because we've got an aging population. Those people obviously are drawing down their super. Now that's being offset by migration to an extent, but that is not always going to be the case. I mean, is this something that the industry is concerned about? That at some point we're going to hit peak super, and we're going to start to see the the amount of assets that are sitting in in super funds starting to decline. And does, yeah, well, and does it matter if we do?
1: It, it matters to some extent because you want to make sure that you, you know, have a um, viable industry, um, but I don't think we would get to, um, to the state where that wasn't the case. I, I think what we will see is a, a bit of a slowing down as we get to you know Generation X and um, people in that sort of generation moving towards retirement. Um, there will be quite a bit of that sizable money because we've got um, bigger balances, you know, because of that nature of having had SG for most of the working lives, um, moving in, we will see more of that then being drawn down over time. However, the other element with this is that as um, younger people are joining um, the workforce, they're then going to get the benefit of um, higher salaries when they start that's then being invested um, with their contributions over time. Um, So I'm, I'm not sure I'd ever say that we actually expect that you're going to see a reduction in the total value of assets. What we'll see is it will start to plateau might be a more reasonable yeah. word. So you're um, what you're saying is it's
0: being offset because people are contributing earlier than they were. So we've got to get through that bubble, which is going to take some time, obviously. That's
1: that's right. So we've got compulsory contributions that are higher than what they would have been um before. Uh, is that a good thing? I think the yeah. answer is yes it's a good thing because we do want people to be, you know, saving for retirement and then using that for the benefit of the retirement. That that is a good thing that you can live a um, more meaningful existence in your retirement than if you were just relying on um, an age pension if you didn't have any other savings. So the the idea of having a you know forced savings it's almost like a deferred pay um, that you're going to have in retirement to support you. I think is a good thing. What we probably do need is a bit more guidance um, to individuals as they in retirement about how do you then take this big lump sum of money and translate it into um, something that you can have um, to last for yeah you know, as long as you think you're going to live
0: yeah and you know there's a there's a there's a whole other discussion down so let's <laughs> yeah. not enter into that because we could be here Correct. for another half hour Absolutely. We? but you know as we as you know i i got lots of questions on that for me as i stare down the barrel of old age uh, but uh, good to talk down uh, we'll i'm sure we'll talk again sometime soon thanks
1: fantastic thanks phil
0: you know, I wish I had more money tied up in my super. I tell you, I am going to be doing this podcast for as long as NAB will allow me for precisely that reason that there's not enough money in my super fund. I'm not sure. Can I do this at 90? Uh, one thing that came up in that, which is going to be interesting for us to explore perhaps in a future episode, the economic implications. If we do have large amounts of super money being invested overseas in increasing amounts, uh, what does that do for, for the Australian economy? Uh, yeah, One for another day. Now, next week, AI Is it more hype than reality or will it transform business and our lifestyles? Will it it give us that productivity boost that Australia and most developed nations uh, are looking for right now? That's next week on the Weekend Edition. And I'm back on Monday for the weekday morning call. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. I'll see you then. The Weekend Edition.